It always was. Think about that for a second. Now I can be honest, and there's some Sundays that's like, oh, Sunday. Why? Because we posture and, and pretend sometimes in our own minds that, you know, yes, we love to worship, we love to be in the assembly, and even when we don't want to be, when we get here, God does a work and it changes us, it ex- helps us to express the gratitude that we have to him for the gospel and for the work that he's done through Jesus Christ and for the work that he's doing in us through his word and then together. And there's always a blessing. I said, but but, but to, to sit there and say that it's always your favorite day is really just nonsense. Why? Because it's also the hardest day. It's the hardest day. It's got the most spiritual warfare. You get up, you know, six days a week and things, you know, you're going to have trials, you're going to have problems, whatever, but Sunday it's almost like you feel the worst, you think the worst, your kids act the worst, you know, your spouse starts an argument. I mean, it's the way it is. And so why can't we just be honest about things like that? Why can't we say, you know what, I enjoy Sundays most of the time because I'm not the type of person that does anything authentically in my own brain it's like I, that's not right it's not the way it's supposed to be let me make myself perfect so we lie to ourselves we lie to ourselves and we say no it is the greatest thing in the world when we know good and well that we have times where it's not even a fondness so I say well you know what my wife my husband my children I love them more than anything in the world that's a lie I mean quit lying I love them this moment because I feel this way. I express these things and all, all of these emotions and the, the, the world and everything's aligned in the cosmos and it's just so perfect and I love them so much. But then there are moments we go, oh, I could kill them all. Oh my God, he's a murderer. I've told y'all for years I'm a murderer. I've been telling you that since the first time I ever stepped before some of you over on Park Avenue 12 years ago. I'm a murderer. Get over it. You're still alive. Nobody's died yet. It's okay. I've got a good track record. But why do we do these things? Why do we say that we love things the way we do and then we're just not honest? Love is one of those things that, as as I've said before to myself and to you, is that it's an overused expression. It's a misunderstood reality. It's something that if we're not careful, we will malign the reality of what love is. And we have in our culture. Love is what we feel, love is what we experience, love, blah, 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 blah. But in ultimate, <laughs> the greatest theologian that ever lived in the context of love is that, uh, I think you said love is a verb and that is a joke. Okay, love is a verb, but the greatest theologian that ever lived, if you all know who I'm talking about. Love is action. Love is what one does in the context of commitment, covenant. Based on passion, based on discipline, based on affection. But listen, the attitude, the actions, and the affection ebb and flow, they wane, they come. The feelings that come, the enmeshment that comes, the emotional attachment that comes with things and circumstances and experiences is nothing but a bunch of chemicals in our minds and our bodies rolling around and we're always wondering how we can, how, how we can not escape this amazing feeling. And then if we're emotional, if we're in a place where our emotions are controlling our thoughts and then that is controlling our actions, we can really find ourselves seeking after things that are necessarily good for us and then we can mistake what love is and isn't 
with what we're doing. So I want to ask the question. When the Word of God says in Ephesians that in love God predestined us, in love God saved us, and when God the Son speaks to, John, speaks to Nicodemus in John 3, when he says that God loved the world in this way, when John writes his first epistle, he says, God is love. Do we really understand what that means? Do we look at it and, and, and really find a way to live that, to live in that? And yes, off the top of my head, I could get an 18-point sermon, and I could give you four ways to next week on how to apply love in your life, 18 ways of which the Scripture teaches us this is prudent, and, and, and honestly, probably write a poem to boot. And we're all like, oh my God, that's the greatest day in the world. I loved the message today. No, you didn't. You felt some things in the message today that you'll probably feel when you have that nice meal afterward. <laughs> Just a different context. And so I'm going to give you the ending of my sermon, the application, and the expression so that when we go through this text in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Genesis 37. We're going to be in Genesis uh, 39, 41, and 45. Not all of them at once. I'm going to tell you the story. I'm not going to read all that to you. So in my hope today is for you to understand that love, and some of you who follow me on social media, you see these thoughts as I, I work through my week. But when the Bible tells us that in love God, it is not about the inner sense in which God feels. It's not even about the actions that God does. It's not the manner in which He loves, it's the marrow from which He loves. Now what is marrow? Marrow is that stuff that's in the center of your bones. And inside your bones, the marrow in your bones is rich. It has things that your body needs. It, it, has, it has codes in there and, 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 and stuff that we've just in the last short time of history have been able to look at and understand and unpack. And what's amazing is those little things like DNA and, and all this other stuff that when we unpack it, there's, there's smaller levels to see. There's more amazing things to understand. But knowing love is not about digging down to the microscopic. It's not about having a full knowledge and a full understanding of everything and being the greatest mind when it comes to understanding love. And, and, and knowing and experiencing love is not about really exercising the application of love in our understanding to the point that the world looks on and goes, Oh my gosh, that's the most loving person ever! Which if I had to put an epitaph on my, on my grave... I want it to say one thing. Compassionate. Isn't that great? Nah. Doesn't matter what it says. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter what it says. What, what it needs to say is resting. If you've not written your obit, you need to write it. I've done it twice this year. I know that's morbid, but it really puts things in perspective. Shoot me. 
I'm a poet. A weirdo. Experiencing love and knowing love really is about taking a deep breath in and beholding it and resting. Being vulnerable without fear. Being naked without shame. Being full but still eating. Being satisfied. That's what it's about. And the Christian world has, has made it frou-frou silliness or dogma to the point that it, it becomes an anchor at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. One of the deepest places in the sea. And we're drowning or we're starving. Well, beloved, I've found a, a, a way of seeing and beholding. I've found the positive side of drowning. Of really just embracing the resting place of Christ and the gospel. Embracing it in such a way that you really fall into Christ, into baptism, into his death, into his life, into his fullness. And you just inhale and then you can't breathe anything else in because your lungs are full. Your soul is full. Your mind is full with the fullness of Christ who fills all things. And it's like, teach me how. People are like, teach me how. I can't teach you how. You have to be there. And then tomorrow I can wake up and it can all be dumped out, but that's okay. I know the well from which it comes, and I know the Father who puts me there. See, there's the difference. So the end, end of the sermon is this. <laughs> In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, the Bible, Paul says, Love never fails. And I've already quoted Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 where it says, In love, God predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance after the counsel, if you will, of His will and the pleasure of His will. I've said this, but I want to emphasize it because it will be probably my closing thought. In love is not merely the manner, but the very marrow of, or the core from which our actions, attitudes, and affections flow. This love is the essence of God's character. The idea that love never fails, never gives up, never quits, is seen all through the scripture with failing human beings, men and women, young and old, pretty and ugly. Yet no one can ever succeed in that but Christ. Love never giving up is the root of true fulfillment. It is what makes us full. Knowing that and breathing that in and resting in that reality and that promise and that power is truly being full. Love does not run. It does not hide. It remains and it rejoices till the end. So the enduring, unfailing love that doesn't give up is the same love that enables us to be full. And we, when we are full of the love of Christ, it is then we truly overflow. And you see the piggyback from last week. So that's the close. Now I want to open in Genesis chapter 37. And I want to look at the life of Joseph. 
I want to think about Joseph in light of Christ, in light of the love of God. In light of this true reality that out of the marrow, love is found in the marrow. So, think about it for a moment. In Genesis 37, let's just read it. <laughs> Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, or Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them to their father. Now Israel, loves, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. And they could not be peaceful to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamt. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheave arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheave. His brothers said to him, Are you going to reign over us? You bigger than us? You going to jump bad, boy? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamt another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and even the stars were bowing down to me. But when he told this to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you've dreamt? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the mind kept the saying in mind. Now think about it for a second. Now, for us who have, our, ha have, have children, and one of them comes to us and says, you know what, Dad, you're going to bow down to me one day. I mean, the dental costs are going to go up in the house. I'm joking. We're not taking them to the dentist. <laughs> and when things like that have been said to older siblings, it's always a trial. It's always a fight. It's always something that's about to go bad. But these dreams, Joseph was just telling his family about these dreams. Now his brother, verse 12 went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are you, are not your brothers pastoring the flock at Shechem? Come, I'll send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron. And he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man says, What are you seeking? He says, I'm seeking my brothers. Tell me, please, where are they pastoring the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I've heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near, they conspired against to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal devoured him, and, we'll see, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into the pit, here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a, 
a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. And their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. For he's our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. So the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers, this boy's gone, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the, blood in, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the blood of many colors brought to their father and said, this is what we found. Identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, this is my son's robe. A fierce animal devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn into pieces. Then Jacob tore his own garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So here's Joseph, this boy hated by those who supposedly love him, left for dead, sold, in the agony of his father. So here's this early years of Joseph in the pit, right? Joseph in the pit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it's a problem. I mean, we know what that says. And God causes all things to work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, when Joseph was in the pit, could he rest in that promise? When Israel got the robe, could he rest in that promise? No. He said he could, but he didn't. He could, but he didn't. He said, I'm going to go to the grave with him. Sheol, Hades. Not a place, it's just dead. It caused emotional trauma. I mean, have you ever been thrown in the pit by your family, left for dead, sold into slavery? Not me. I mean, it's felt like that. Go to your room. I'm in slavery. I mean, you know, it's felt like that. But it's not like that. The trauma that these human beings went through in this context, and not just that, imagine Reuben, imagine his brothers waking up every day for years, knowing what they'd done, knowing that this boy was beloved, and that if the truth came out, their father would hate them and be justified. Probably have them put to death according to the law and be justified legally. But in this betrayal, in this trauma, there's a truth that rings. Remember Psalm 40, when it talks about the pit? And it says that we're in the pit, and God will bring us out. But while we're there, he lends his ear to us. We need to remember that. We need to remember that in the pit, that's still the love of God performing. That's still the love of God acting. That's still the love of God investing. That's still the love of God that's active. It doesn't mean absence of purpose. It doesn't mean that it's a wasted life. Beloved, when we find ourselves in the pit, we find ourselves in a place for greater things. Now, what? What greater things? I mean, this betrayal, being sold into slavery, who else does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus, right? 
Here's Jesus being born into the world, the creator of the cosmos, being born into the world as Messiah, Mashiach, Christ. And yet, what does he have to do? He has to flee to Egypt. So here's Joseph being taken under slavery to Egypt. And here's Jesus being taken to escape death to Egypt. Joseph escaped death by going to Egypt. Jesus escaped death by going to Egypt. You see the parallels. What trauma. So when Paul writes to the Hebrews and he says that our Savior, our Lord in every way, has experienced everything that we've ever experienced in the human emotion, in the human temptation, in the human trials. He has. Jesus the person, Jesus the boy, Jesus the child, Jesus the teenager, Jesus the young man, Jesus the 30-year-old, has experienced every emotional thing that this world could ever encompass. But sinned not. He never failed to rest in the midst of great pain and suffering. If we go to Genesis 39, he was sold into Potiphar's household. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. That's powerful. I mean, was Joseph walking around with the spirit of fire on him and all this kind of stuff? No, there was a sense in which Joseph was probably unconsciously with the Lord. It wasn't sort of obvious like Moses, hearing the voice of God, meeting God in the bush, meeting God at the tempest on Sinai, meeting God and seeing the hand of God in the, fire, the fiery tornado and the tornado of smoke and all this kind of stuff. Watching the miracles... But there was an inner peace, there was an inner rest, there was an inner hope, there was an inner trust. Joseph had an opportunity to be bitter and vengeful. To exercise his rights under justice. It was unjust, it was illegal what was done, it was illegal. It was deplorable. It was wicked. But yet, the Lord was with him. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. I wonder how. <laughs> Let's just put it this way. I think that Potiphar saw that the Lord was with Joseph because Joseph wasn't shaken because of his circumstances. And he probably said to himself, this boy serves me like he's my own son. Like this is his house. He doesn't speak ill of his brothers. He doesn't even concern himself that he's my slave. He, I own him. He's my property. And look at him. He's just doing the job as if this is his house. That is absolutely the reality of it. How do you know? Because no one puts someone who's haughty, frustrating, and entitled in charge of their own house. Who puts who in charge of a house? The one who treats it as their own. Now does Paul's writing in Hebrews start to ring a bell about Moses and Jesus? Now does it start to ring a bell? Or does it start to pop into your head and sort of settle in your soul when you, when you think about when Jesus says the Son indeed will set you free? 
for who stays in the house. Is it the slave? Absolutely not. The son stays. The child stays. The adopted stays. In love, God predestined us for adoption, to be children, sons and daughters of the living God, that we may abide in the house and rule over it. Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. You see the picture? If you haven't listened to my teaching in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, do it. Get the imagery of that poetry. So that, it's, so that the Old Testament starts to make sense. Because it is, the, it is the outline of the Old Testament, remember? And so we know, the, we know the point. You know, you heard me say the ugly people and the handsome people, the good-looking people. And, the, and there is, because the Bible says that Joseph was a very good-looking guy. He was a handsome guy. And he goes on to say, But the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house, and for Joseph's sake, the, for Joseph's sake, for Joseph's sake, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge. He had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Hey, what's happening, sexy? What's happening, cutie? And he goes, Nah, that's not happening. I'm a steward of this man's house, and I'm not doing this. Everything he has put in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this wickedness against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there, she caught him by the shirt. And she demanded him. But he tore away from her and left his shirt in her hands. <laughs> and what happens? She called the men of the house and said, Look, he's brought this Hebrew among us to laugh at us. And he came in here and he did this and he did that. I have his shirt as evidence. So they put Joseph in prison. <laughs> they put him in prison. Now, where's the parallel here? Well, we know what happens. But think about Jesus. Think about the, the, the life of Jesus all of a sudden in this context. I mean, Jesus goes out into the temptation for 40 days. He's tempted. He's tempted. Joseph is tempted. This is the picture. This is why this was recorded. Not for us to say, Woohoo, Joseph's such a good guy. Joseph wasn't a good guy. The Lord was with Joseph. Let's, let's stop there right now. And let's go ahead and let's be honest about good guys and bad guys. And good girls and bad girls. When someone overcomes temptation, it's not because of their discipline, it's not because of their resolve, it's not because of their morals, it's not because of their ethics, it's not because they're good, it's because the Lord is with them. And they can't say, I can't believe. Because see, self-righteous people don't notice the Lord is protecting them from things. And they go, I can't believe sister so-and-so did this, that, and the other. Or I can't believe brother so-and-so said the things he said. I'd have never said those. I'd have never. There, don't ever say what you wouldn't say, do, or think. Because I will promise you this. The more haughty we get in those resolves, you will go to the doctor and say, why am I having these thoughts in my head? 
Or you'll lie and pretend like, Sunday's my favorite day of the year. All of them. Just one big day. Just as Joseph was accused, Jesus was accused. The importance of this is to see that isolation and trial build our character. Joseph could not be where, could not go where he was going had he not gone, gone, had he not gone through what he went through. Jesus could not have gone to the cross had he not suffered the way he suffered. He could not sympathize with you had he not been tempted as you are tempted. And see, stop looking at temptation as just the bad things that you think about. Look at temptation as any time that you're not resting and secure in the love of God. So how much temptation is in our lives? It's nonstop. It's constant. Sorry, didn't mean to bust your bubble. But that's the reality. We are not able to escape. And then we war, we talk. I was telling one of my children yesterday that I have the most intimate relationship that I've ever had with anybody is with myself. Conversations. I remember being four having conversations with me. And the clearer my mind gets and the more focused I get about here and now, the more vivid those memories come. I think, man, I've been saying the same dumb stuff since I was four years old. Almost. 46 years. <laughs> That's crazy. What do I expect? Joseph then, as we see over in chapter 41, we see that he interprets some prisoners' dreams in chapter 40, and over in chapter 41, after two whole years. See, Joseph wasn't put in prison for a couple of weeks and survived. Joined the gang, kept him safe, you know, about three months. He was there for two years. And there's some food issues there and some other things there, and we'll see that too. But after two years, Pharaoh dreamed a dream. And what did Joseph do? He just interpreted dreams. God had gifted him that. He didn't know that. He just understood them and said, oh, this is what it means. Look at that young boy telling us what our dreams mean. And so Pharaoh has a dream. And it scared him. And all of the magicians and all of the wise men and all of the soothsayers and all of the doctors and the lawyers and the <laughs> debaters could not interpret the dream. But the chief cupbearer said to, said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me on the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamt on the same night, he and I, each having a dream of its own interpretation. And he goes, verse 12 of chapter 41, a young Hebrew was there. This young Hebrew boy, I remember very clearly, a servant of the captain of the guard. See, because even in prison, Joseph served as if it was his prison. I don't like that. I don't want to emulate that. And I'm not going to apply that to my life. So I'm not telling you to. 
I would love it to be true, but I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like every irritating person in the world, I'm going to try to serve them. It is what I should do, but I'm not going to stand here and tell you that. And I'm not even going to say shame, shame, shame. It's no shame. We are who we are, and God prepares us. Out of all the prisoners, Joseph is the only one recorded of being a servant. And we should be a servant to one another. So serve who you can where you are, as God's equipped you to be. Quit trying to serve everybody. Sometimes I think my, my dissonance, I needed to listen to that. I need to listen to my irritation some, so that I wouldn't try to do everything for everybody. And in essence, do nothing for anybody. A young Hebrew when we told him, he interpreted our dreams, given an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Pharaoh said, go, go, go get that boy. <laughs> go get that boy and bring him in here. And so they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. And I've heard you can, when you hear a dream, interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And Pharaoh said, okay, look right here. In my dream, I was standing on the Nile. Seven cows, plump and fat, came up out of the Nile. And fed in the grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly, such as I'd never seen in the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate the first plump, fat cows. And when they had eaten them, no one would have known what they had, they had eaten them, for they were still ugly as they started. Then I woke up, and I saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, good and full. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and thin ears swallowed up by the seven good ears. And I... I told it to the magicians, but no one can explain it to me. And Joseph said, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. That means they have one meaning. God revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. And the seven good cows are seven good years, or seven ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after the seven are the seven years, and the seven empty ears blotted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And he basically told him, there's going to be seven years of plenty and there's going to be seven years of famine. And if you don't have your act together, your people are going to starve and everybody's going to die. And then Pharaoh afterward said, there's not a whole man like this ever to walk the grounds that we live on who is in the Spirit of God. You shall be over my house, Joseph. Excuse me? You shall be over my house, Joseph. I am the king of all Egypt, and all that my eyes see I rule, and you shall be my hand. I think about that. And he put him in that place. It reminds me of the temptation of Jesus, right? When the devil, when the enemy took him up and took him out on the, on the cliff of Jerusalem and said, as far as you can see, I'll give you all this if you bow down before me. Joseph didn't ask. Joseph didn't grovel. Joseph just served and God established it. And it's not even the point. God didn't do it because of Joseph's servanthood. God caused the servanthood 
as the means through which God would put him in charge. Because it's not quid pro quo. Love is not quid pro quo. If you do this, then I'll do this. God is not. I mean, there are some conditional promises that we see in the Old Testament, but this isn't one of them. And those conditional promises that we see in the Old Testament are always invalidated because the people who said they would never did. (laughs) Hence, why Christ had to come. Why? This is God's divine timing. This is God's divine purpose. This is God's love. Working. Acting. Living. But why? What, what, was it, what was good for Joseph to be? What was God's purpose? This. Chapter 41. I mean, chapter 45. I've got to skip over. Well, there's a lot there. Let me tell you the story. Famine starts. Joseph is in charge. He makes great preparation. He puts things away. He rations. He prepares. And when the famine comes... Egypt eats as though it had never seen famine. The storehouses are full. But the people are starving. So they go to Egypt. His brothers come to Egypt to stand before the king to beg for food because their families are dying. (laughs) Luke 15, the prodigal son. These pictures, I mean, read the Bible. They'll come to you. And they don't know that it's Joseph. They don't know that it's him because he's different. He's older. He was a boy, you know. It's older. He's clean-shaven. He's probably got on Egyptian regalia as a ruler. And in chapter 45, it says, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood to him. And he cried, make everyone leave me. Now, you've seen TV, right? Get out. And everybody, like thousands of people, get out. Get away. I want the room. (laughs) I want the court. I want the castle. I want whatever the heck they were standing in. I want the room. I've got to talk with these people. Get out. Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and that the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers, they couldn't speak because they were, they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. 
And they came near and he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant to keep you alive. So, you didn't put me here. God did. Now think about that. <laughs> Boy, the people who hurt you and then you have steadfast resolve and you serve and you stay quiet and you rise to be the most powerful human being in the world. And the people who put you in a hole for dead stand before you and dare ask for food and all you got to do is break wind and they die. But you don't. Knowing love. You see how I opened my sermon about the positive side of drowning. You can't escape that as a divine gift. You cannot see this and go, oh, I want to do that. Or, no, I see this and go, there's no way I would be like that. I might have fed them because I really am a sucker. But I would have made them squirm. Do you know who I am? I mean, see, this is good cinema, right? So I take off my headdress, look into my eyes, look deep. No, we don't know you, sir. Look. The last thing you saw as you threw me in the pit. Oh, it's just, ah! They had a grovel, two or three minutes had gone by. Guards had come around, chink, 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 you know. And then I'd have let them go and been the hero. See, that's, that's what ego does. Love never fails. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. And God sent him so that they would live. The only reason that this history exists is so that we on this side of the cross can look at it and say, Oh my God, you are amazing. You even portrayed the coming of your son in the life of Joseph, in the life of Moses, in the life of David. These weird people with nothing to do but live in a place of antiquity. The life of Rahab. The life of Ruth. And the list goes on and on. And so come near to me. Come near to me. That's love. That's the love of Christ. And only the Spirit of God can give us these things. This humility. This compassion. This exercise of resting and understanding that the significant pain and trauma that we experience is for the sake of Christ's name. That we might be compassionate and loving to the very people sometimes who hurt us. Now that's not a prescription for us to go out and find all the devils who have destroyed our lives and fix it. 
Because if we're going to place an application apples to apples, they came to him. The prodigal son came home. But in the divine sense, Jesus came to us. Then he brought them to Egypt so that they could live with him. Remember my clothes? Love never fails. God predestined us for adoptions, adoption as children. After the counsel of his own goodwill. In love, love is not the manner, but the very marrow or the core from which our actions and our attitudes and our affections flow. But these things will ebb and flow. They will change. We won't feel them. But we can be. And we can do. Because Christ has done. This love is an essential aspect of God's character. And it is evident in the life of Joseph as a picture of the life of Jesus. You've heard this before. I just read it 40 minutes ago. So as Joseph shows the love of God operating from the core of unfailing love, so Jesus perfects it. As Joseph forgave his brothers, the very people who sought to destroy him, he forgave them. Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection forgives us. He sets the record clean and he restores us. And brothers and sisters, the beautiful thing is that so many people in our camp don't want to hear is that the gospel and the love of God also transforms us. I cannot make judgment of a man or a woman's place before the Father, but I can make judgment on whether or not the Spirit of God is ruling in that heart. And persons without compassion are not spiritual. Persons that aren't willing to say, you know what, I don't have any compassion. Because there are eight out of ten times I don't have it. That's why I think it would be a farce to put that on my tombstone. Just say resting. But love never fails. Love never gives up. Love does not stop. It endures. And in the end... Oh, beloved, in the end, look at the love of God in the life of Joseph. He became co-regent. He became the king's hand. He restored life to the future of his own family and generations to come. The remnant of Israel survived. Without which Jesus would not have been born. So there's the thing. When we think about the cross as the apex of history, a lot of people think that that means it's just the most significant event, which is true. But it is the central reality, the central fullness, the central fulfillment of the very reason that life exists on earth. And every molecule, every piece of matter, every calculation, every distance, every measurement of everything in the universe in its infinite measurements 
exist that Christ, who upholds it by the word of his power, may stand before God the Father with us, his bride, and say, we are clean. That is love. When we love, those who have offended us are clean before they ever come. And we frame our minds to look at one another in the light of the gospel. We don't look at one another through the pain they've caused us. We look at one another through the love we have for them. Because what we expect is always what we get. It's always what we find. If we're looking for hate, if we're looking for disgust, if we're looking for frustration, it's there. It doesn't take a lot of search. You don't have to dig like, you know, Indiana Jones to dig it up. You just got to open your eyes. It's there. You want to find problems with me? Just hang out after service. I'll show them to you. Or ask my wife or my children. They'll lie to you. No, he's awesome. I'm not awesome. You're not awesome either. But guess what? We are awesome. Because Christ came to us. He gave himself for us. So we can live at rest in the love of God. I do not live this life in the flesh. This is not mine. That's what Paul says. But I live this life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. In whose name we stay, stand, and are sustained. Be full. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for the truth of the Gospel. And Lord, I thank You that I could come here today with my sinfulness and with my failings and with a history of just constant knuckleheadedness and Lord proclaim the truth of your gospel of your good report the tell the story from scripture about your unfailing love the very fact that that is possible proves your divine power for nothing is hidden from your sight father you can see everything that even I cannot see about me but you love me. And you do not love us in spite of our sin because you have taken it away. Father, the writ is gone. The indictment has been burned because the case has been handed down guilty to the Son whom you have sent so that there are no charges pending against us. Father, please help us to love this way. Please help us to share it, to say, I know a love like this. That we may grow into a beautiful, suffering arrangement of glory for your sake. We thank you for this in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.